First, you must realize that you have no idea before you can know the idea. We scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new. Let us begin. What has physics done for me lately? Furthermore, the equation E is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? The whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. I love that flourish. <laughs> Good morning. You're tuned into what can only be described as the best radio station on That's this it. blue dot called Planet Earth. It's 4ZZZ, be it on your conventional wireless radio by tuning into the classic frequency 102.1 FM. Digital devices such as DAB or Smart Speaker, listening via the Community Plus app or streaming us live from our sensational website at 4ZZZ.org.au. And of course, you can always listen back to us or any 4ZZZ show for that matter using the ingenious on demand feature also found at that URL. We also have a podcast now, but you need to look up the show. The show is called. No idea, spelt with a K, your weekly dose of science. And joining me today to speak all things science. This week. <laughs> Every week. <laughs> Some of my favourite <laughs> science communicators. May I please introduce the wonderful Jay. Hello. And the master. Good morning, Gabe. Good morning, beautiful people. Um, we've got a lot of science to get through. This is going to be... You, Max, and Jay, and Izzy's going to pop in. I've got some stories. We've got a story from a friendly neighbourhood marine scientist. We've got a lot of science coming your way. I've got some weird science, Max, on why we have elbows that are so flexible. <laughs> Based on some <laughs> new evolutionary <laughs> research has come out. Yeah. Uh, and I believe, Max, I believe that we have some tickets to give away. We do. They're down here. Yeah, we do. And I reckon we'll do a bit of this. Kick us off, Gabe. What do you got? Why do you reckon we have elbows, Max? So we can bend our arms. Bend our arms. Yep. Seems like a pretty good reason. But do you know where they came from and why they evolved? Because we use them now for a lot of weird stuff, mm. like throwing do balls we? at stumps and yeah, resting on tables to the back of a shelf and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Mm. But researchers from Dartmouth. QS ranking? <coughs> no, you're wrong. 237. <laughs> have found a moment in the evolutionary history of humans that may have led to us having such flexible elbows. Yeah. The researchers used sports analysis and stats software to compare videos and still frames that they took of chimpanzees and small monkeys called, oh my goodness, mangabes climbing in the wild. They mm. found that the two scaled the tree similarly. They climbed up similarly, up climbing, as they officially call it with shoulders and elbows mainly bent and close into the body. But when they were climbing down, the chimps extended their arms above their heads to hold onto branches like a person going down a ladder to, with their rump weight, the weight of their butt, pulling them down. Uh, and it means that what they think the, the chimps were doing differently to the monkeys was using their elbows and their shoulders as well hmm. as brakes 
effectively, whereas the monkeys were not using them in the same way to climb down. And so they think that down climbing, as they call it, uh, because what climbs up must climb down, <laughs> down climbing from getting the fruit in the tree is what led to us having such flexible elbows and shoulders, the need to be able to climb down a tree. Uh, getting out of a tree presents a lot of challenges, they say. Uh, big apes can't afford to fall because it could kill or badly injure them, so natural selection would have favoured these anatomies that allow them to descend safely. Uh, and it, yeah, means that all these things, these little bits of, of, of elbow and shoulder greatness, like pitching a ball at a baseball bat, and uh, all the other weird things we do with our arms nowadays all came from the ability to climb down a tree with some brakes. Nice. With some That's bananas. That's science. Nice. Nice. What do you got first, Jay? I don't have a weird science <laughs> this week, Max. <laughs> you tune into 4ZZZ and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Jay and Gabe. And Gabe, you want to talk about some tickets from the Queensland Museum that we're going to yes. give away this episode? Yes, Queensland Museum has sent through some tickets to us to give away on air this morning. They do the uh, the Dinosaurs of Patagonia exhibit, um, where it has, I think, 16 life-size skeletons mm-hmm. to look at, uh, including Titanosaur, which is arguably the biggest dinosaur in the world. So you can go have a look at a skeleton on one of those. But we have some tickets to give away, which is pretty amazing. The Queensland Museum keeps doing this for us, and we're very grateful to them for doing it. But you're going to have to put in a little bit of work. And what I want, Max. Yes. What I want, Max. Do you want to read out the number for me quickly before we get into what you need to do? 0420-626-733. What I need from you. We'll give away. We've got four to give away. We'll give them away in two doubles. Yeah. Two people can win. I need to hear from you. What dinosaur is sitting on top of the Queensland Museum right now (laughs) in a big old blow up? (laughs) Not just what type, but also its name. First person to text it in will get one. And then for everyone who texts in the right answer, we'll do a lucky dip of the remaining people and give those away. So first one in, guaranteed, lucky dip from everyone else who texted in. I need the type of dinosaur, the genus is is what you're going to need, and the uh, name of that specific dinosaur that's sitting on top of the Queensland Museum. There you go, Max. Beautiful. I think Izzy's here now. It's part two of this. It is Izzy. Okay. I better read out my weird science. You ready, Jay? I'm so ready, You want to stop texting? You're right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm spreading the word about our giveaway. (laughs) I actually am. When it comes to printing, you have to admit 3D printing or additive manufacturing is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. You can Mm -hmm. make car parts (laughs) that no (laughs) no longer get manufactured. Some weird objects of choice. Basically, anything you desire. Have you seen the guy who 3D prints houses for, for wildlife in his backyard? This Aussie guy. He made yes, like a frog mansion. The frog and then mansion. He made a, the possum moved in, so he's now made a possum mansion as well. Yeah. Right. That's pretty cool, Max. You know, you could do that? Did not. What if I said, though, you could do all this in a sustainable manner? Ooh. With the kicker being, if you print something you do not like, simply grind it up and start again using the same material that you started with. Mm. Print and repeat for as many times without the waste. This is all thanks to Michael Rivera, now an assistant professor in the Atlas Institute and Department of Computer Science at the University of Colorado, Boulder. QS ranking? 53. Okay. 52. 
264. But save up that number, Gabe, because when Rivera <laughs> was a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon University, QS ranking. 52. Yes. Is it 52, Max? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I got it. It was on me. <laughs> he worked at a cafe in Pittsburgh. The cafe contracted a local group to pick up their used coffee grounds for composting. But all this changed during COVID. What to do with the ever-increasing pile of coffee grounds? So let's start at the beginning. Most 3D printing is done with thermoplastics. The most common being polylactic acid, or PLA. This bioplastic is theoretically biodegradable, but still makes takes many, many years to decompose. So Rivera and his team got to work repurposing the used coffee grounds into a material that could be used for 3D printing. The coffee grounds were mixed with two common food-grade binding agents, or gums, and some water added until a consistency of peanut paste was achieved. Then after doing some modifications to a 3D printer to accept the new coffee resin, Rivera got to work printing out some novel objects. Once the printed objects had dried, they had a similar strength to that of non-reinforced concrete. Some of the objects Rivera made included small planter pots, which can be used to grow seedlings for acid-loving plants like tomatoes. Once the plants get tall enough, you can plant them and pot and all in the garden. His team also added activated charcoal to the coffee grounds to make parts that can conduct electricity, such as buttons for sustainable electronics, which I think is pretty smart. That is pretty smart. I reckon Dave from Eco Radio will be freaking out right now after hearing (laughs) that science. But Rivera noted that printing with coffee grounds may never become mainstream, and his accompanying YouTube video does no favours. It shows what can only be described as a 3D printer taking a very... Very long dump. (laughs) But Michael hopes the project will serve as a touchstone towards discovering other kinds of sustainable 3D printing materials that could one day replace plastics. My name is Max, and that's my weird sign. It's pretty cool though, right? Yeah. Because the the there is a barrier as well to a lot of people who do 3D printing. Mm. The it's expensive to buy the raw materials yeah. to do mm. it. And it so often stuffs up and you end up with something that is just some massive web of plastic that you can never use again and you have to throw out. So I think there's yeah, that's awesome. If you can find a reusable way, I th- there'd be people there. If it prints well, you know, it doesn't sacrifice too much on quality and those sorts of things, then yeah. um People will chomp at the bit for that because of how how expensive it is now to not have an option that you can reuse, and how annoying exactly. it is to have yeah, to yeah. go through all those resources for small errors. Okay, I feel like you're about you're up to something. At the yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me? Oh no! You tune into four triple Z. Well, I don't know what's going on. The show has no idea. We've got easy now. <laughs> We got a reindeer <laughs> in the background. What is going There's on? There's a little here? reindeer in There's the studio. How cute is that? Yeah, yeah. They've left us a little gift. <laughs> I think it's ours. I don't know. Mm. It's ours now. It is ours now. Yeah, it's too bad. <laughs> so sad. It's got the note. Oh four two zero six two six seven double three is our number if you want to text in. Like. We've been getting texts <coughs> for Max, the Queensland Museum tickets we're giving away. To yeah. t- dinosaurs of Patagonia, giving yeah. away to the first person to guess the name and the, the type of dinosaur. 
that is sitting, big blow-up thing on top of the Queensland Museum, and then anyone who gets it right after that will go into a big draw and we'll do, give two more tickets away to one of those people. We got some good guesses. Brontosaurus came in from Jack. We had Titanosaurus come in from Cheryl, which is a, is a good guess. Not correct, but it was a good guess because it is one of the dinosaurs in the exhibit. Yeah. So, solid option. There was... Uh, a couple others, and some people have gotten close in that they've gotten either the name of the... I'm not going to say what it is, so don't read it out, Max, because we need people to keep texting in mm. the, to the second draw. But uh, so people have gotten, like, either the right type of dinosaur or the right name. Yeah. One person has texted in with the, both the correct name and the correct type of dinosaur, and that's Hamish. So, Hamish, two tickets coming your way after this show, but Yippee. there's more. So... If you can text us in the type of dinosaur and its name, its actual, it, they've given it a name, like, you know, like a, a normal human name, uh, then you can text that in as well the type. And then a, normal, a normal human name. What a normal mean, human name. Dudasaurus, yeah, it's just a guy. Yeah. That's why we do the That's science it. show. Yeah. Normal yeah. name. Cool, and cool. Uh, yeah, well, so text us in the name of the dinosaur and type uh, 0420626733 and we will pick out a lucky person to grab two more tickets. Max, you're going to do some marine science. Can we? Has Peter got I something think so. this week? Cool. She does because there was a bit of a story that kicked up some kerfuffle a few days ago of some guys in a boat that got capsized by sharks. And our friendly neighbourhood marine scientist has that for us. I'm pretty hot-headed when it comes to sharks in the media. I mean, as your friendly neighbourhood marine scientist, I happen to really like sharks and they are treated like the scariest things in the ocean. They People always blame them for like every bad thing that happens. So last week when I saw an article that a boat was capsized by some sharks off of cans, I nearly flew off the handle. Because, like, really? A boat, like an ocean-faring boat? How? Like, how would they do that? Until I saw in the byline that they were cookie-cutter sharks. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, just like their name, these guys are kind of adorable. At least I think so. They're, like, up to 40 centimeters. They're long, gray, and thin. They're essentially like a tiny drain pipe with teeth. But their teeth are, like, it, they're just so funny. They're really funny teeth. Because if you asked like a year two student to draw you some teeth, they would honestly draw a fantastic rendition of cookie cutter shark's teeth. But it's these teeth that allow them to get their name. The shark essentially attaches itself to its prey like with its lips, so it sucks on, and then it latches on with its teeth and it spins. And that's how they make these insane circular wounds, like a cookie cutter. And they really are very perfectly circular. Like, if I had seen these in the 18th century, I would have had no choice but to believe in mermaids. It's just, it, it's crazy. You should look them up. They're not very pretty, but you'll see it. But also, that's just how they eat. Like, they don't kill their prey. They just kind of take off chunks, like giant biopsies. It's what changes them from a predator to a parasite. They really just have a nibble. And that is how they managed to take down a 9-meter catamaran. Because it was inflatable and the poor babies just got a little bit confused really the punctures made at about 1am meant a swift end to the sailors bid to beat the world record for cruising in such a vessel and if that sounds sad well give yourself some space because it's actually not their first boat the first one was also punctured by sharks in tahiti maybe we should just not have inflatable boats on the open ocean but anyway back to the cookie cutter sharks because i like them more another really weird thing about these sharks is the way that they glow because yes they do glow 
and they glow mainly from the bottom of their body, which is something called counter-illumination. Though not many glow, this is pretty common in the ocean as a form of camouflage, like how orcas are largely dark on top and light at the bottom. And you have to remember this is sort of like horizontal camouflage. So essentially, if the animal is swimming along, let's say it's that orca, and something looks at it from below, the white underbelly sort of matches the white of the sky that's coming in through the top of the ocean. And if you look at it from above, the black of its upper body blends in with the dark ocean beneath it. But given that the cookie cutters hunt at night and that this is glowing, there's a bit of a theory that it's a bit more than camouflage. Because specifically, there's this bit around like what we would call their collar that is not glowing. So if you looked up at it, there's just this little bit that stands out that doesn't blend in with the glow of the moon on the water. It would be silhouetted against the light. And if you looked at this shark from below, scientists believe that that little patch could look like a small fish, which is weird because most things want to look bigger, not smaller. So they were like, well, why? Why would they do this? And they think that they use it as a trick to lure their food. They essentially wait for a larger predator to come and attack what they think is a small fish, only for the shark to whip around and attack the attacker with a little hole-shaped bite. Crazy little cookies, you know? Jay, four years ago on this show... You say four years ago? Four years ago. I yeah. was not here four years ago, was three I? Three years ago, was it? Must have been three years ago. Must have been 2021. Three years ago. <laughs> Two years ago. Two years ago, something like that. <laughs> a while ago on this show. <laughs> it was 2021. Were you here four years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was two years uh, ago. I blame COVID. Show. Yeah, look, COVID fog was just say it's that. Nice. What do you got for us, Izzy? Well, are you going to roll the sting or what? Do I get a sting? Yeah, I get uh, uh, You oh, want okay. a sting? No, I'm okay. Whatever. No, it's okay. Whatever. It's okay. It's okay. Okay, Max, here's what I've got for you for weird science. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so um, recent news, Sir William Wilmot, who is um, recently passed away at the age of 79. Mm. Who is this person, you ask? Mm. Um, he is the scientist who led the team on to create the world's first cloned mammal, yes. Dolly the sheep. Right. Um, so Ian led the group in the Roslyn Institute at the University of Edinburgh that produced the cloned sheep. They combined the cells from a mammary gland of a Finn Dorset sheep with the egg cell taken from a Scottish blackface sheep. Because Dolly's DNA came from a mammal gland cell, she was named after the country singer Dolly Parton, which I did not know. <laughs> but that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so a little bit more on um, Dolly. She was... Um, she's not the first animal, first of all, foremost, to be cloned. Just to clarify, she is the first mammal to be cloned. Mm -hmm. um, the first actual cloned animal was um, the African clawed frogs in um, 1958. But she was the first cloned, um, like, mammal. Mm -hmm. um, and her work, um, her kind of... The whole process um, contributed to a successful cloning, um, led to the widespread advancements. Yeah, her um, legacy. Of, yeah, her yes. legacy um, of stem cell research, including mm. the discovery of um, induced pleur 
potent stem cells, mm. um, which was pretty cool. She lived in the Rosalind Institute throughout her entire life and right. actually produced several little lambs. Okay. Um, she was sadly euthanized at the age of six due to a progressive lung disease, mm. um, but no link of, was, of course, found between... Did we get any wool? Pardon? Did we get any, any wool? wool? That's, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> That would go for like a lot on the black market <laughs> yeah, as well. That's Damn. Right. A dolly uh, jumper. A dolly jumper. Damn. Yeah. Um, but her body is preserved and was donated f- uh, by the Rosalind Institute to the National Museum of Scotland, where it has been regularly um, exhibit- exhibited mm-hmm. since 2003. So this happened. She was born in 1996 and died at the age of six in 2003, which is pretty long mm. for a sheep as well. Mm-hmm. But. Um, a lot of people have contributed Sir Ian Wilmot's um, groundbreaking research um, to the um, various, like, it's new. Um, it's something that we haven't seen before. It was iconic in the 90s, it set the benchmark for the potential of cloning technology and altered um, a lot of understanding of genetics, reproduction, and the boundaries of medical research. So I thought that was really cool. Um, rest in peace to Sir uh, Ian Wilmot. Mm. But Dolly the Sheep is one of my favourites. by extension, Dolly. By extension, Dolly. <laughs> it was one of the coolest things you'd like read in National Geographic or something. Yeah, yeah. We'd be like, damn, how cool would it be if you're like cloning humans, you know, someone else to do your homework whilst you go and play <laughs> video games or something like that. I don't know. And people get their pets cloned now too. Like Barbara Streisand gets, yeah. gets her dog a clone for 50 grand or something like that. Yeah, so now it's like a... Yeah, it's, it's a, 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 it's a, a normal thing now. It's yeah. a worry, isn't it? Anyway. It's all started with Dolly. So I did not know she was named after Dolly Parton, no, which is not. really cool. <laughs> uh, we've had some good texts in. Guessing what the dinosaur is bursting out of the roof of the Queensland Museum. Uh, we're giving away two double passes. One is claimed. Hamish has already got the answer yeah. of the name and the type of dinosaur. That's the big blob thing. Uh, but we've got anyone who puts in the correct answer between now and midday. We'll do a bit of a draw between. I can tell you, Max, it's only three people so far. We've had a lot right. of checks in, yeah, but yeah. only three people have gotten the correct name mm. and type of dinosaur. We've had some good good guesses. George the Ankylosaurus. We've had one person who texted in saying they don't know what the name is, uh, but they've just been calling it Zachary for months because it looks exactly <laughs> like their brother when he stubs his toe and yells. Now, you're skipping over the most important one, which is Rory. Yeah. Rory the dinosaur. That's good. Man. That's really cool. Dude, I'm more, I'm more interested in the names that people have given the four sucker, not Text type. Text us in 0420 Anyone who gets the type and the name of the dinosaur will... Uh, yeah, go into the running to win those double passes. We'll send them out to you to Queensland Museum's uh, exhibit, The Dinosaurs of Patagonia. Max? You're tuning into 4 Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Jay, Izzy, mm. and Gabe. And Jay, we're back to you. <laughs> what story have you got for us? I have a story. A while ago now, V and I uh, mm. covered a story about pig organs being transplanted into a human being. Yes. Mm. It was a rough story. Mm. It was It was actually pretty hard to cover because we got in our heads about it. Mm. Um, a man was able to live for about two months with a pig heart instead of a human one. Mm. It was a big yeah. moment for science, um, if not one that definitely came with a whole bunch of ethical... Mm. In uh, new new areas of ethics, we didn't even know needed yeah. to exist. Yeah. New ethics, I like that. Yeah, new, check it out. New ethics just dropped. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy passed away at the end of those two months, didn't he? Yes. And, and sort of knew that was going to happen going in. He was yes. terminal, I think, and this Whoa. was a last ditch thing. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. From you know, he, he was happy to try it out, and it gave him that extra time. So from his end, yeah, it was. The best they could do in a tough situation. But yeah, the main issue was xenotransplantation. 
and is, of course, minimising the risk of organ rejection, which is what happened in that case. Mm. To this end, scientists have tried a new way to try and make xenotransplantation more viable. They've grown human kidneys inside pig embryos. Well, mostly Whoa. human anyway. Whoa, that's there's a lot to unpack uh-huh. in that single sentence. Uh-huh. So in the last few years, this area of science has managed to grow rat organs in mice and mice organs in rats and humanised skeletal muscle and tissue in pigs. But this is the first time a human, or again, mostly human, organ has been grown inside another animal. You got some spare pages in that new ethics book, Izzy? (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Damn. In order to grow an... Well, hold on. (laughs) Trust me, hold on. Um, In order to grow an organ, we need the help of pluripotent stem cells. Stem cells, as you all probably know, are the stuff we all start out as. With the right stimulation, they can be encouraged to differentiate into different human tissues, all kinds of different human tissues. Pluripotent means that they aren't young enough to turn into all the kinds of tissues just yet, but they can differentiate into the majority of them or a lot of them. Because of the specific needs of our stem cells, though, they usually die in other species' bodies, which is why this hasn't been done earlier. Mm. Well, that and probably because no one really wanted to. (laughs) This team of scientists at the Guangzhou Institute of Biomedicine and Health in China, which I couldn't find a QS ranking (laughs) for, Max, have changed all Uh. of that. When the pig embryos were still just single cells, they used a gene editing tool called CRISPR, every biomed student's Mm -hmm. favourite. Yeah to cut out two genes needed for kidney development. That created a space that the human stem cells could fill. The stem cells were also tweaked to have particular genes that stop apoptosis, or cell death, to try and keep them alive longer. Nearly 2,000 embryos were transferred into surrogate pigs. After 28 days, just five were taken back out to have a look. All five had normal kidneys consistent with their level of development, and the organs contained 50 to 60% human cells. Hmm. That's the highest percentage of human cells observed in any organ grown inside a pig, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Given more time, the scientists reckon there's no reason to believe that the kidneys wouldn't continue developing normally. And they even think it's possible that with time, the human cells would edge out the pig cells and end up just developing a human kidney. Now, our human kidneys have more than 70 unique cell types that need to properly differentiate. And while the pig kidney did have some of those, it's yet to be proven that all 70 will successfully show up. Also, here's where it gets interesting. A couple of the stem cells accidentally differentiated into brain cells in the brains and spinal cords of the embryos. The brains... Yep. Just sit with that for a moment. That's the, that's a whole different book in the ethics yep. section. What that theoretically means is it's possible that they could accidentally create a pig with a human brain. Right. How's that for a horror movie? <laughs> is that premise? like a Simpsons bit? <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> feel like a wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the lead Whoa. researcher says that moving forward, the team will knock out the genes that orchestrate the stem cells' potential to differentiate into neurons as well as eggs or sperm. So we can't have any human pig babies happening. Um, <laughs> it's, it's visceral. Now, we're not likely to overcome the issues around organ rejection until we create a 100% human organ in other animals. But 
it's a new dawn, a new day for the world of xenotransplantation. Um, quite fascinating. And, you know, there are, I mean, there are lots of benefits to this kind of research, I guess. Um, so there you go. That's my, that's probably one of the most fun stories I've done in a while. Sweet. Ooh. Any thoughts, any reactions? <laughs> Just oh. what is he said. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> man, that's a whole separate. That's a whole separate book of ethics. Oh man, holy! The, cow. the idea that you could actually accidentally develop a human brain in in like another creature's terrifying. Even just, have, even just having like viable human brain cells in a pig embryo is still yep. weird. Yeah, and, and yeah, wow, that is how far is nuts. too far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, uh, we've had a lot of text in about the dinosaur max yeah and i can say you know i said there were three people who had it right before mm. it's gone up to four oh. so there's still a, we've <laughs> had a lot of guesses from melinda the allosaurus uh there's been another guess for the titanosaur it's not titanosaurs that <laughs> is one of the dinosaurs inside it's a, it's a good guess this is why i feel like i need to call it out it's a good guess it's inside the museum in part of the exhibit it's not the one on the roof Triple. we've had yeah uh, and if you were tuning in and paying particular attention about five minutes ago, yeah. oh, did drop a bit yeah. of a clue on air yeah. uh, because I don't think yeah. Izzy knew, knew the answer. Right. Whatever, whatever. <laughs> okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to Four Triple Z just to hear us talking about what Butters just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science careers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I will keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand that mic to Max, and I'm not talking Van Staffen. It's lights out, and away we go. I love hearing Gabe's laugh all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, you just lifted that straight from the first time it was played, <laughs> yeah, so I laugh every single time. <laughs> We're going to talk sailing. Cause Bring in the joy. Sail GP happened on the weekend off the coast of France. Wahoo. The regatta consisted of five fleet races featuring the 50-foot falling catamarans that can reach speeds up to 100 kilometres per hour. Ten boats from ten countries with crew who are basically guns for hire. <laughs> Irrespective of country, they just whack themselves on any given boat, no matter what country it is. Except for the Australian team, I think they're all Australians. The results, after the five fleet races, Australia went into the final race alongside Great Britain and Spain. Australia made an amazing start and led for most of the race until GBR Great Britain split the race course and got a positive wind shift and passed Australia. So it was GBR... Australia and Spain third, but not to worry because Australia still leads season four of the championship with nine regattas to go. Next one will happen in Taranto, Italy, on the 23rd, 24th September weekend. And on a side note, did anyone see the racing on the weekend with Sail GP? Nope. The New Zealand boat. Mm. It's rig. On the first day. So they finished the, the three fleet races mm. and uh, the New Zealand boat was just jibing and just, just, just cruising around, basically. And suddenly their rig, the sail, right, um, just exploded and fell onto the deck, onto the transom. It was amazing. And it's amazing no one got hurt because these, these are heavy bits of equipment coming yeah, they're down. they're huge. They're huge, all right. And it just came smashing down. No one was hurt. I think there's like six on board. No one, no one got hurt. 
Damn. But I'm really keen that they get to the bottom of why that structural failure happened because it could happen to any of the boats. Mm. So because they're all they're all very similar, right? Yeah, in their, they're in all their made design, in, yeah. yeah same place. So it's carbon fibre. So maybe there was just some sort of bad layup of the carbon fibre when they were making up the mast. But yeah, interesting. Interesting. F1 Motor Racing's governing body, the FIA, is currently working on putting in place new chassis regulations for 2026 as well as the planned shift towards active aero to help reduce drag on the straights the fia has offered some more details about what else could be changing the fia's head of single seaters nicholas tombazis said that the main shift will be in the size of the car with the dimensions of the wheels which will also be narrow plus the rear wing and the car in general they aim to reduce the weight of the cars as well to around, drop it by 50 kilo. And so we've got the Singapore GP this weekend. So it'd be good if the cars were a bit narrower, a bit like the F2 cars, mm, a bit more passing, say, yeah. yeah. F1 horoscopes. Do you think I should talk about that? <laughs> yes, Go ahead. please. I'm highly <laughs> interested. <laughs> if Taurus is your star sign, chances are your horoscope will never make mention of becoming an F1 world champion. Huh. Drivers with the star sign are the least likely to achieve F1 stardom, <laughs> even though Red Bull are so dominant. You get that one? Uh, yes, I do. Nice. Yes. Nice. IndyCar, also final race on the weekend at Laguna Seca. Scott Dixon, one from fellow Kiwi driver Scott McLaughlin and Alex Palau in third. This meant the championship was secured by Alex Palau. And finally, the Valtteri Bottas and Roman Grosjean report. Valtteri Bottas' love of all things Australian has led to him conceding he may one day move to our country. Even before Bottas started dating professional cyclist Tiffany Cromwell, he admits his personal affiliation with Australia was already in full swing instigated by his first visit to Melbourne for the Australian Grand Prix back in 2013. Bottas says, Since the first time I went there, just the lifestyle and culture are pretty cool and I actually feel the humour. Compared to Finnish people, it's really similar. They're pretty sarcastic. You reckon Australians are sarcastic? No. Yes. <laughs> and you say that in a sarcastic yeah, 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 manner. Yeah, yeah, Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Meanwhile, IndyCar driver Roman Grosjean's time at Andretti Motorsport has come to an end. On the weekend, Grosjean was seen coming out of Dale Coyne Racing trailer. The team owner for Dale Coyne Racing confirmed as much, saying conversations with Grosjean have taken place. For those who care, Roman finished 11th on the weekend and 13th in this year's championship. So it would seem that the Phoenix failed to fly this year. And that is it for the motor wrap. What do you got for us, Gabe? I've got... Well, Max, <laughs> we have some tickets to give away. But Max, a Gabe. few weeks ago, I was watching... I was watching a TikTok. I'm just going to level with you. I was on TikTok and I saw something that was kind of interesting. I've been thinking about it since. There was this... It, one of those channels that does like those social experimenty things they like hold microphones in front of people and do some sort of social experiment stuff and and so they had a bowl two bowls in mm. one was i think one red m&m and nine blue m&ms and in the other bowl was nine red m&ms and 91 
blue M&M. So you had, and then they they gave it to people. You, you following me? Yeah. Yes. You got, you got one out of ten red ones in one bowl and nine out of a hundred red ones in another bowl. And they went to people and said, put a blindfold on, which bowl do you want to pick one from? If you get the red one, you get a hundred bucks or whatever it was, right? right. Yeah, yeah. The idea was, and people picked the bowl with nine, more, more often than not, picked the bowl with nine out of a hundred instead of the bowl with one out of ten. Even though statistically, Pure stats says you should go for the bowl with 1 out of 10 because that's the equivalent of 10 out of 100. Like, you've got a 10% chance of getting it from that bowl and a 9% chance of getting it from the other bowl, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is this I, this thing that, that humans are just <coughs> crap at dealing with numbers, <laughs> right? We're just not built for it. Yeah. And so we see the higher number on the the numerator yeah. over the denominator when the, in the fraction like you see the 9 over 100 instead of the 1 over 10 and you go for the 9 because it's got more in it you know like this is mm -hmm. just what we sort of do in, in a, when you, someone walks up to you in the street you get on the, on the spot you pick for the 9 out of 100 um, even though statistically it's the worst option to choose and this is not uh, like the only instance of this apparently we're really bad at big numbers too uh, <laughs> there's some research that's found intuitively like Inbuilt, we really only have some, like up to the number five intuitively built into us, and the rest we have to do some degree of counting to do. Uh, and and uh, like they say, if you put if you get a line, draw out a li horizontal line, and on the left hand hand side you put the number a thousand, and on the right hand side you put the number a billion. Okay, and yeah. then, so between there is the numbers between a thousand and a billion, one by one. If you just mentally have that line in front of you and put one million on there, plot one million between those two numbers between a thousand and a billion, where does your mind put one million? They say for most people, that peop the, the, the number one million goes about halfway between a thousand and a billion. Mm -mm. That's where most people plot that number, even yeah. though the number one million is a thousand times closer to a thousand than it is to one billion. Like the, it's basically a thousand, then you go to one million and then there's a huge bit of line and then you get to one billion. But because we're not built for big numbers, we just don't, visualize it properly it's almost gotten to a stage where we sort of think of thousand hundred thousand million billion as just incremental steps up even though they are massive leaps as you go up mm -hmm. those labels yep. but all that weirdness has some consequences sometimes it's not great consequences like in covid we were all came face to face with massive numbers being thrown at us and and not really being able to to compute that properly in our heads and take according action to keep ourselves and people around us safe. Like it, it's really hard to know what those numbers meant every day of 20,000 new cases and million deaths and those sorts of things. Really hard for your mind to actually get a picture of what that means. Mm -hmm. Also has some weird consequences. And that's where I'm going to go with this story because there's been a study out of UCLA, yeah. US ranking. Oh, that, that'd be fairly low, wouldn't that be 80? Anything else? 42. Oh, pretty good. 44. Oh. Nice. UCLA research has shown that people uh, view... Well, I'm, I'm, I won't tell you what they, what they found. I'll tell you what they did. They showed people computer-generated images of NFL players, mm -hmm. um, the US's concussion machine of a sport. If you want to have a look at it, Max, I've, I've put it in the playlist for you to have a look at the link oh, yeah. uh, of yeah. these computer-generated mm -hmm. images. Uh, they were always... The, the, the different um, players that they computer-generated were different uh, body sizes, different skin colours, different jersey colours, uh, but always in the same pose. And 
Mm. I, as I'm sure you can now see, Max, when I say computer generated, I mean like PlayStation 1 level graphics <laughs> generated. VGA graphics. Yeah, okay. exactly. Like yeah. almost oh. arcade machine graphics. <laughs> NFL <laughs> players. But, but different skin colours, different yeah. body sizes, uh, different jersey colours, the same pose. And then they changed one other thing about them. They changed their number on their jersey. Each player hmm. got shown to the study participants twice. So each combination of like skin colour, size, jersey colour got shown to a participant twice, mm -hmm. once with a high number on the jersey, once with a low number on the jersey. The study participants were then asked to rate how large they thought a player was. Oh, Not how large the number good. was, how large the player yes. is based on the number they're wearing. Right? Mm. Overall, the players with lower numbers on their jerseys were perceived as being thinner than players in jerseys with higher numbers on them. Mm. But the research is like, okay, this could be a factor of the large numbers just physically taking up more space. And so if you see a larger number taking more space, you think there needs to be more space. You know, you need a bigger canvas to begin with. So like think of that the number one versus the number 78, the horizontal space they take up is very different. So they replicated the study in person. This time they added a bit where they were testing the difference between numbers like 17 and 71, 18 and 81, the exact same width just the mm. numbers swapped in a different order. So one is a bigger number and one is a smaller number, even though they take up the same amount of width and height on the jersey itself. Mm -hmm. The players with the smaller numbers were still perceived as being thinner, <laughs> slimmer than the players with the larger numbers. And it seems far-fetched, but there was a report that sort of prompted this study that came out of the US sport outlet ESPN in 2019. They asked NFL wingers, or wide receivers as they call them, why so many of them prefer to wear smaller numbers. And they said it makes them feel like they look faster and slimmer. <laughs> so there seems That's to be great. something real going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wild. The, they say the results strongly support the hypothesis that when processing perception of body size, the brain uh, leans on learned associations between numbers numbers and an object size. Think about, you know, the grams that you've got that you're looking at uh, for the bag of sugar you're going to buy there. Like everywhere we look, the, 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 the higher number is, the bigger something tends to be. And we yeah. seem to learn that association and then carry it into stuff where that association doesn't exist. Uh, they say... Generally, these learned, learned associations help the brain interpret sensory inputs, um, but they can sometimes become crosswise effectively. Mm -hmm. Like it's this thing that our brains have learned to uh, almost like it's an efficiency thing of just going bigger number, bigger thing. But it has these implicit biases that, you know, sometimes are just sort of a bit comical, like the perceived slimness of an NFL superstar athlete, but other times can have some, you know, pretty nasty consequences with all sorts of other implicit biases. But yeah, that was, uh, that's what they found. They found that the, the number on a jersey of a computer-generated NFL player <laughs> changed how people, how slim Perception. people perceived they yeah, were. Amazing. The silver lining though, from yeah. all the, the implicit bias stuff and the negative side mm -hmm. of that, was that there was no associated perception change with how talented they thought that athlete was, regardless of the, the slimness of them they thought they mm -hmm. thought. Yeah. The number didn't change how talented they thought the athlete was, just how mm. slim they thought the athlete was. Interesting. There you go. So should we start wearing numbers on our outfits now? <laughs> well, there you go, Max. You can if you want to. If you start rocking up in the number 11 or something, then we'll, we'll know what's up. <laughs> Ultimately, first the worst, second the best. Like, man, that's interesting. Did you like that? That was I good. Liked it. You tuned into 4 Triple Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Jay, Izzy, and Gabe.
And we thought we'd do a rebroadcast of one of your stories, Jay. Yes. When you did with V. Yeah, from uh, November 2021, just a couple of months after we started here. And it's about desert plants. Let's give it a spin. Hey, Jay. One month till June comes out in Australia. Did you want to go see it with me? Oh, hey, V. I'm feeling torn. It's everything I love in a sci-fi story. I'm practically foaming at the mouth. But together with Glasgow dooming us to a dry, sun-bleached death, it's all becoming a bit too real. I enjoy a good hydraulic despotism story, but I don't want to live it. I'm too young to die in the water wars. Oh my god, I had this exact feeling when I saw Mad Max Fury Road just months after the Paris Agreement was adopted. It's so hard to enjoy dystopian fiction when the climate crisis is looming in the background. And I feel like things have only gotten worse. I mean, at this rate, we're going to be facing some hugely existential problems like mass displacement and food insecurity. Absolutely. One of the many issues relating to food security is how we can fortify our major crops against shifting climate conditions. Is there no way the species we eat can just, I don't know, evolve with us? I mean, you're an ecology student. Isn't adaptation just part of the natural cycle? One species might disappear, but then a new one will emerge to take its place. Yeah, but the big issue here is that conditions are changing at a much faster pace than most species can evolve to keep up. Conservationists are warning we're on the cusp of a mass extinction event, of which there have only been five that we know of in the Earth's history. Only a small number of species are well-placed enough to adapt to the changing conditions, but we are trying to learn from them. One study I read analysed plants in the Atacama Desert to find out how they're surviving in such harsh conditions, and whether we can apply their survival techniques to fortify existing crops. Wait, you mean the Atacama Desert in Chile? The one they used as experimentation sites for Mars expedition simulations? That's the one. The Atacama Desert is remarkable for a variety of reasons. Most notably, it is the most arid non-polar region in the world. Its soils have extraordinarily low levels of bioavailable nutrients, and it's also subject to extreme levels of solar radiation. Just like in June. You haven't even seen it yet. I've seen the promo material. Alright. Anyway, the Atacama Desert's harshness is what makes it perfect for studying how plants cope with these conditions. The study spanned over 10 years and the researchers had to preserve plant and soil samples in liquid nitrogen and transport them over 1600 kilometers back to the lab for genome sequencing. I can imagine that taking samples from the original environment would help retain a lot of that contextual data, like soil properties, rainfall and temperature conditions that would be so difficult to simulate in a lab. You're completely right. So the researchers found that immediately around the plant's roots, the soil was chock full of growth-promoting bacteria, performing important ecological tasks like nitrogen fixing and producing ammonium. They also provided protection against pathogens and stimulated plant hormone production. This soil was compared to soil in the same area that didn't have any plants growing in it. They found that these special microbes only occurred around the roots of plants, indicating that there were some mutually beneficial relationships going on. The plants also had a variety of genes instrumental for adaptation, regulating things like stress, salt, detoxification, and metal. That's fascinating. So the extreme conditions have naturally selected for plants that have a genetic advantage when it comes for adaptation. How can we harness that? As it turns out, a lot of these plant species are quite closely related to common crops such as cereals and legumes. The genes identified by the researchers can thus help us genetically engineer existing crops and make them more resilient to climate change. 
It'll be interesting. I know GMOs are a controversial topic that some people may take issue with. I think the more insidious issue at hand will be whether the corporate giants are able to patent these GMOs and monopolize the agriculture industry. It's scary to think about how these resources that have been part of the global commons for centuries are now being privatized and restricted from vulnerable communities. This would be even more devastating in a future where accessibility is so crucial to food security. And I think it's important to keep in mind that we can't engineer our way out of everything. The fact that scientists are capable of developing clever solutions to our problems isn't a green light for us to continue with the way things are. You tuned into 4 Z, and the show is No Idea with Max, Jay, Izzy mm-hmm. and Gabe. Can I play this thing yet, Gabe, or you have anything to say? You have my permission. Please proceed. <laughs> <laughs> no Idea Space News. Starship. The Federal Aviation Administration has now completed their investigation into SpaceX's first integrated Starship launch back in April. In the statement, the FAA said it had completed the investigation into 420 launch from the company's Starbase site in Texas. The vehicle suffered several failures of Raptor engines in the booster during its ascent, later tumbling before being destroyed by a flight termination system four minutes after liftoff. The FAA, which oversaw the SpaceX-led investigation, noted the investigation identified 63 corrective actions that SpaceX must complete before another launch. Now, if we've got time, I just want to run through the 63. Yeah, go on. Not really, because... Do it. No, do it. No, no, no. You've, you've already laid the, the ground work. You've got to do it. It's the, fine. The FAA... Said, no, no, it's right. ...said, the, re- said the report <laughs> <laughs> will not be released publicly. You don't know any of them, do you? <laughs> <laughs> because it contains proprietary and export-sensitive information, the agency said the report found multiple root causes for the mishap but did not elaborate. So I'm sorry I cannot read out the 63 failures. MOXIE, which stands for Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilisation Experiment, has generated oxygen for the 16th and final time aboard NASA's Perseverance rover. MOXIE's impressive performance shows that it is feasible to extract oxygen from the Mars atmosphere, oxygen that could help supply breathable air or rocket propellant for future astronauts. Since Perseverance landed on Mars in 2021, MOXIE has generated a total of 122 grams of oxygen, about what a small dog breathes in about 10 hours. At its most efficient, MOXIE was able to produce 12 grams of oxygen an hour, twice as much as NASA's original goal for the instrument, with 98% purity or better. Mm. On its 16th run, which happened back in August, the instrument made 9.8 grams of oxygen. MOXIE successfully completed all of its technical requirements. So let's hear it for MOXIE. That's pretty cool. Max, mm. I've got some of these 63 things for you oh. <laughs> that uh, SpaceX has to fix. Yeah. Uh, according to the FAA, the, reg- the regulatory body over in the US, yeah. redesigns a vehicle hardware to prevent leaks and fires. Pretty, pretty good thing. I think they should fix that too. <laughs> Redesign of the launch pad to increase its robustness, incorporation of additional reviews in the design process, additional analysis and testing of safety critical systems and components, including the autonomous flight safety system. There you go. Beautiful. Mm, ooh, nice. 
Sounds like an Aussie Rules sort of theme song, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> the Brisbane Lions. Go to the Brisbane yeah. Lions. Anyway, that's the Space Force theme. And Space Force has finally revamped its mission statement. The Space Force unveiled the new statement last week outlining the service's mission in just nine words. Secure our nation's interests in, from and to space. In a statement, Space Force leader, General... Chance Salsman said the new mission statement was produced exclusively through soliciting suggestions from Space Force service members who are known as... Do you know what they're known as? What? Guardians. <laughs> no! Are they guardians Yeah. Of? How oh, wow. that? Salsman said, We did not hire a corporate marketing team to develop a catchphrase, nor did generals sit around a table in the Pentagon debating what the statement should be. Our mission statement was sourced from a Guardian-driven process. I wonder... (laughs) Did the name Guardians come from an internal process too? (laughs) Sometimes not. Sometimes sometimes marketing agencies are actually worthwhile. (laughs) 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 And was the Space Force theme derived from a Guardian-driven process? Mm. Uh, Epic. Epic. And finally, Ingenuity. Mars Mini Chopper. Izzy. It's flying 57 flights now. So we're getting close to the magical number of 69. So Damn. Izzy might win this bet yet. Coming in. Damn. It only has to get to 60 and you've won it. Whoa. Tight. So, yeah, three more flights. We'll see what happens. And that is it for the Space News this week. Nice. And it's right now for us to say goodbye. You're tuning to 4 Z. The show is no idea. Izzy's back in the room. The team is together only for five more minutes. How did we go with the competition, Gay? <laughs> we went well. Hamish has won, won the first batch. We were, we were giving away tickets. You can mm. still text in. Okay, I'll give you another 60 seconds if you want to oh. give it a guess. <laughs> <laughs> so 0420 You can text in the name and the type of the dinosaur on top of Queensland Museum to win tickets to the Dinosaurs of Patagonia exhibit. Hamish got the first bracket mm. of the first couple of tickets, yep. first double. Yep. Uh, for getting it first, but anyone else who, get, who guesses the right answer, we've put into a pool. Uh, but yeah, Max, we had a lot of entries, a yes. lot of wrong entries, and a few correct <laughs> entries. <laughs> cool, As cool. it stands, the other double pass will go to Lucy, who texted in with the correct answer, which was Izzy, Rory, Rory. the Raptor. Rory the Raptor. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. A Conda Raptor yeah, is the genus too. name. Rory <laughs> the Raptor sitting on top of the museum. Uh, Max, that is all we have time for, though. It is. Uh, on this morning's show. We'll be back next week, 10 to 12. For no idea, talking science, as we do every week on your airwaves for 4ZZZ. Thank you to Max and to Jay and Izzy and to Peter and to V and to T for your help this week getting the show on the road. That's all i got to say, though. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Thank you, Gabe. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks for everyone tuning Ever in. the savage. And we'll speak to you next week. See ya. See Later. Ya. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. Science.